Hi, and welcome to the 50th episode of OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill and Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. In honor of this special edition, we're mixing things up this week, and we're going to take a look back at some of our highlights over the last year. First up, talking with Tom. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So it's no, it's not two minutes with Tom it's on not. OA on Air. It's just talk with Tom. We're kicking it off. This is the 50th. 50th episode. Episode. Pretty good. It's very exciting. You know, we're the only, I think we're the only PR firm in the New England region that has a podcast studio and a weekly podcast program. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty exciting. It is exciting. I think when, first of all, this beca- this came about as such a s- sort of organic process that we put this together and uh, really kudos to Brooke here who learned how to do all of this from nothing. Um, He's our production manager. He is. Yeah. Good job, Brooke. And and Ashley as well. Uh, but I'm so proud of what we've built here. Uh, and I think that we, it's so, something so different uh, for, for all of us that we kind of had to figure out how to do. And, um, and we've had such an amalgamation of guests and interviews and people exciting. come in here. Been very yeah. exciting. We've had leaders from the community, both corporate as well as political, as well as cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had Senator Markey on. We've had a few of our congressional delegation as well. Uh, so it's it's been very exciting. We've had some authors, Jim Carroll of mm-hmm. Note, um, Dan Kennedy. Yeah, it's been great, hasn't yeah, it? We've huh? had media figures. Yeah, it's been really. Um, and I think they've all enjoyed it too, which makes it even more fun. Right. Uh, and we are going to, for today's episode, we're switching it up. We're going to do a rundown of uh, 10 picks of interviews we've had over the course of the last year and the last 50 episodes. And Terrific. It is such an amazing reflection of the variety that we have brought into this studio, into this uh, podcast. So we're excited. And how are you going to do the 10 picks? You're going to just pick them out and, and have them re-recorded? Is that what it is? We're going to pick uh, clips. Great. We're picking clips, and uh, we'll we'll walk them through and yep. have some fun. So, fifty episodes. Thank you, Tom. It's been fun, and we've got countless more to go. We have. We're going to continue this and uh, break ground every single week with it, yeah. and try to keep technology in the forefront here at this at this company, and let's show that um, anything that needs to be done in the way of communication that we're gonna do it. And if we can be the first city to the street with it, we're gonna do that as well. Absolutely. So to all of you people that have made this happen, Heidi, congrats and on to the next year. Happy 50th. Thanks, Kyan. Thanks, Tom. We wanted to do something special for our 50th episode, so we decided to take a look back and pull some highlights over the last year of some of the guests who have helped make OA On Air so successful and really a fun project for us here. I am joined by Hugh Drummond, Senior Vice President at O'Neill & Associates, our behind-the-scenes coordinator and editor-in-chief of OA On Air. Hugh, thank you. Hey, it's great to be here. I love highlights. Who doesn't? (laughs) Who doesn't love a great highlight reel? Exactly. Um, So... What I love when we've we looked at compiling this list was there's such a great such a great group and so much variety in the kinds of people and the different industries and organizations and backgrounds that they come from. Exactly. I mean, it's 
50. I mean, that's 50 weeks. One, mm-hmm. Once a week, we, we push out OA on air. It's um, big it's, team effort. It's, it's an incredible milestone. Yeah, everyone's been involved. And, um, you know, I think the, the thing that I think is fun is I, I listen to every, every episode before it goes out. And um, it's kind of peak. it's kind of my yeah my <laughs> role on Thursday afternoons. I you know I sit in the office and kind of um, uh, listen for gaps and anything that might we might need to touch up. And um, the diversity of interviews, the reach uh, of the of individuals' networks mm-hmm. um, has been extraordinary. It's so much fun. And Tom and I were talking about this too about just how proud we are of this thing that we've put together here and that it really started as you know we thought it would be an opportunity to you know showcase our clients which we've done um, and really been a great opportunity to showcase some of the incredible work they're doing but then we've also gotten you know really great guests outside in the media landscape uh, from politicians to business leaders uh, and it's it really is really impressive when you sit back and kind of take a look at it yeah and we focused on on our own people too Mm -hmm. which which I think is fun because everyone's come here everyone came to uh, OA for a reason for a professional skill and we've been able to highlight some of, some of the reasons why people are here and, and kind of what they bring to the table for their clients and uh, showcase their expertise. So without further ado, we're going to jump into our highlight rule and kick things off with Congresswoman Catherine Clark, who was in here a few weeks ago for an interview with our own Ben Josephson. Um, she had, it was a great interview. Uh, ben did a great job. So kudos to Ben, who's also... OA on air is possibly number one fan, so we've got to plug him. Um, but she talked about sort of the Democratic caucus and, and some what a, amazing work they've been able to do since having sort of more of a majority. Uh, she was really excited about freshman representatives that are invigorating uh, the House and um, it just kind of changing the landscape a little bit. But she also talked about her bill the Time's Up bill uh, to protect workers that she's working on. Uh, and you could tell that that's something that's really important to her. It's about time uh, that, that Congress takes uh, takes this up, and, and she's been an incredible leader on this. And I'm very proud of her. She's my Congress uh, person mm-hmm. and represents my town and my, my, my district. So uh, huge fan. And the fact that the um, uh, 2018 midterms kind of shifted the balance of power, but also shifted the makeup of of who's in Congress. And so finally, we can um, give a voice and platform to to, uh, issues like worker equity and um, and the things that uh, the Time's Up bill addresses. And I think the thing that she said that was what stuck out to me was that this would allow people to show up to work and be, quote, treated with dignity. And, yeah. you know, that doesn't that seem like much to ask. Not much to ask. <laughs> so uh, here it is, Ben Josephson's interview with Congresswoman Catherine Clark. And, and I know one of the things that actually just, and you mentioned a whole series of of legislation around gun safety and workplace protections that you've been working on throughout your time in Congress. But just today, um, there was another piece of legislation I know you want to talk about uh, around further protections in the workplace. Time's up. Can you talk talk a little bit about uh, how this came together and and what you're seeking to achieve? Sure. This is a bill that we're doing with um, 
with Patty Murray in the Senate, and it is really putting together the first comprehensive piece of workplace protections uh, that came to light in the you know the Me Too movement. Um, but we need to address it concretely. And we have had so many people in this country come forward, share their stories, and this piece of legislation is meant to back that up. And we want to let business know that we understand that many small businesses that don't have HR departments, we want to be able to work with them, provide them with resources and materials so they can have policies that protect workers. And we think that will ultimately help with recruitment and retaining a talented workforce for them. So we see this as a partnership with the business community um, and uh, a great place to show, especially women, but really everyone in uh, the workforce that Everyone has the right to a job with dignity where they can show up and be respected and compensated fairly for the work that they deliver and do. And that's the fundamental of this bill and the reception uh, and the partnerships that we're getting have been wonderful and uh, very proud to be doing it also with Ayanna Presley. Uh, it's one of our lead co-sponsors uh, from Massachusetts as well as Lori Trahan. And uh, it's a great chance for the women of the Massachusetts delegation to, uh, to get to work together. Up next, we have an interview with Josh Kraft. He's president of the New England Patriots Foundation. He also serves as the Nicholas president and CEO for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, I mean, it's incredible organization. And one of the things that uh, Josh makes and uh, points out is kids will enter the club maybe with different skill sets, but they all have equal opportunity once once they're indoors there. And um, it's an incredible uh, organization that uh, supports them and helps kids along their way and make sure that they all don't lack opportunity. Yeah. So uh, now we've got Cosmo Macero with Josh Kraft. Talking to Josh Kraft of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation, as well as the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Josh, can you talk a little bit about the programming and services offered citywide by the Boys and Girls Clubs, as well as maybe over the next five years or so, or whatever your longer or midterm growth plan is, growth expansion, what the goals are for the for the Boys and Girls Club in terms of initiatives and things you're doing? Well, I'll start, Cosmo, with the second part. And we're actually in the midst of a strategic planning process right now at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. So, and we're really wrestling with, do we want to expand or do we want to go deeper with the kids we're serving now? I, I think they'll probably, I don't know where it's going to turn out, maybe focus more on depth and a little less on expansion, but we will see. But we're working on that. But at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, we like to say that what we do at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston is we address something that we all talk about in this country, and that's the achievement gap. But really, the achievement gap is a symptom of a bigger problem, and that's the opportunity gap. And addressing the opportunity gap is what we've been doing for over 125 years at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. 
And every single kid that walks in the door of one of our buildings, no matter what their socioeconomic, race, religious background, family of origin, has equal access to opportunity as the kid they're walking into the building with. And that's what we've been doing for 125 years. And we do that through programming in six core areas, leadership, life skills, education, arts, technology, and sports, fitness, and recreation. And within each of those, there's unique programs that can, uh, small, uh, unique programs, whether it's a book club, a science club, a soccer league, a yoga class, a Zumba class, uh, our tech team, a robotics team in technology, and so many other different programs. And these opportunities, we hope, uh, are su supporting the community today but then also building a stronger community in the future. Uh, you know, 80% of boys and girls clubs nationally say they're involved in their communities because of what they learned at the boys and girls club. And you know, it's, it's the proof is in the pudding. The chair of our board, Bruce Jacobs uh, from Westfield Capital is an alum of a boys and girls club from Washington State. So switching gears a little bit, we had the editor of the Boston Business Journal, Doug Banks, in uh, actually pretty early on. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I talked to him. We did. And uh, great interview. Doug's always a great person to, uh, to talk with. And what we're going to listen to is a little bit of you and Doug talking about um, the nexus of business and politics. Yeah. Social media gives a voice to, to everyone and, and businesses are listening, not just electeds, businesses. Yeah. So here it is. It, let me let me um, ask another uh, question. Um, on our podcast, we, we frequently touch on the nexus between politics and business and in Boston and in different issues like that. Um, we've seen over the past year plus a number of corporate executives, CEOs weighing in um, on political issues that in years past they would avoid. I'm just curious for, as, you know, business editor, what do you think about that trend? Is it a trend? And um, what are the new boundaries? That's a great question. I think that, um, I think that the rise of social media and social media savvy companies can use platforms to their advantage. So there are some CEOs like Starbucks, for example, where they founded the company on a set of principles and they want to hold those, you know, hold those principles and they want to go public with those principles. And when you have a, a president like a President Trump who's very polarizing, then you're going to get one side or another, you know, making uh, making statements. Uh, you know, Boston, obviously, we're a very progressive city. Our business leaders are very progressive. So you're going to see um, you know, Boston business leaders are going to be pretty vocal uh, against things that, uh, especially for a more conservative government like we have right now. You know, but interestingly, um, a lot of the the sort of tax reform and some of the business friendly policies that this Trump administration has brought in, you're not seeing a lot of business people talk about any of that because it's working for them, right? I mean, there's companies that are making uh, with the new tax reform policy, they're going to make money hand over fist and you're not hearing a word. They're not saying a peep because they don't want this to go away. They don't want to gloat. No, they, exactly. They're not. And then that's what you know that that's the downside so i think that there's an upside and a downside and and you know some companies and corporate executives are smart about it and then 
you hear about a couple of those who, who are not so smart and they get you know knocked down a peg or fired. So every year our team here helps support Fan Expo Boston, formerly known as Comic-Con. And last year was the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, which I have never seen. Uh, But we had uh, Gary Lockwood on the podcast to talk about the iconic scene where he's running upside down in a spaceship. Well, I've seen the movie. It's fabulous. I highly recommend it. I own the movie at home. It's it's one of those <laughs> that just stands it. out. Yeah. So uh, here he is, Gary Lockwood, how he ran upside down in a spaceship. And, you know, so the first scene that we really see you in as Dr. Frank Poole is run, running or getting exercise around the station. So I have a couple questions on that, one of which is just... How was that filmed? I mean, the film is 1968. It's before a lot of the uh, the special effects that we see now. So I was really in, but they really hold up. And so I was really interested in knowing how that was actually filmed. Well, actually, it's not that complicated. If you think about a squirrel in a cage running on a wheel, uh, our, our the centrifuge was about 65 feet high. It was built by Vickers Aircraft in the north of England, and it was built in two halves, and it had a, it all spun around a neutral hub. And on either side of the two halves of the wheel um, were strapped many television things, and, you know, so that, so that the 70 millimeter film could uh, register all the computer, computer screens running the ship. Now, how they achieved the thing of me running upside down and all that inside, there were different things depending on the shot. If um, Because it was built in two halves, it had a very thin uh, camera mount that moved, that, that came up between the two halves. And so if you, uh, so for example, had the camera mount... Um, sort of, you know, it's hard to explain in a way. For example, if if it looked like I was running upside down, that would be where there would be a fixed camera mm-hmm. that would move and go, and it would look like I was running upside down where I was a squirrel in a cage remaining in the bottom of the wheel. Right. Other shots where you see my face that is just a camera crew running like hell backward, trying to maintain a position. And I'm running sort of slightly downhill because gravity wanted to push us both to the bottom of the wheel. You know what I'm saying? Yep, sure. If you saw my face running, um, shadow boxing, et cetera, uh, that was just a camera crew inside running backward and I'm I'm running down a little section of the wheel trying to act like I'm on the you know running upside down so Up next, I had the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Silbert. She is the president of the EOS Foundation, uh, who is heading up the Women's Power Gap Initiative, which is really looking at gender parity in industries throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, and she is talking about the importance of diversity, particularly among gender, in leadership. 
This was a fun project for us. It was, yeah. So uh, here we go, Andrea Silbert. And for anyone who might not understand, because it seems simple, but um, why is that? Why is it important? Not just for young women um, and and women, but men as well. Why is it important that we have parity at leadership levels in really any sector? Yeah, what's so important about diversity is that you know, in this day and age, when women and people of color are the majority of our state's population, if you only have men um, from a certain background running our organizations, they just can't make the right decisions in terms of an aggregate, you know, collectively. If there's a table of 10 university presidents sitting around saying, you know, what do, what do we need for Massachusetts State Universities? And they're, they're not informed by people from different backgrounds. So it's really the most important thing that I think is the, we think about diversity of life experience. So you want all sorts of diversity, but you've got to start with gender diversity because we all know that women and men have different life experiences and bring different things to the table. Up next, a little bit different. We uh, we had a bit of a crisis communications powwow here. It was you, myself, and yeah. Jeremy Crockford. It was in the wake of the Merrimack Valley uh, gas explosions. But one of my favorite uh, clips, and not because I'm in it, because I don't like the sound of my own voice, but because one of my favorite things about working in this building is the conversations that happen every day around current affairs and, and work product and things that we do. And I felt like this was just one of those conversations that happens in a hallway brought into our podcast studio um, and just really showcases what I think is so great personally about um, O'Neill and Associates and not just the three of us, but just the expertise and the smart people that we have working here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was a great conversation that we had. And one of the things that we we frequently talk about when it comes to crisis is it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. You can only talk about what you're actually doing. Mm -hmm. And um, in this interview, we, we kind of talk about that. Yeah. So this clip looks specifically at talking about the first 48 hours. Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, you had the Merrimack Valley explosion, which obviously, and I, I don't think I'm casting aspersions on anybody here because this has been a national topic of conversation. The response in the first 48 hours, which as both these guys can tell you, is the crucial period when you set the template for how you did in responding to a crisis. They did not do well. And that has a lasting effect because reporters, people in the governor's office, legislators, but most of all, people who live in the vicinity of the tragedy lose confidence. They lose confidence that, that you are effective, efficient, that you can get your hands around the problem. And that lasts a long time. The first couple of days are crucial. I, I couldn't agree more. The um, And there's, you know, we we saw the, the gas explosion in the Merrimack Valley, but it comes on the heels or simultaneous with, with the uh, Hurricane Florence in, in the southeast. And unlike the gas explosion, hurricanes are known. They We know they're coming. You know that you have time to plan for them. Um, they come every year. Um, yet at the same time, it's it's the same 
type of uh, uh, response that's needed. Those first couple of days after that storm has cleared, it's, uh, it's crucial to respond effectively, efficiently, and compassionately. And I would say the one thing that helps you in the first 48 hours, whether you're a small company, whether you're a big airport like Logan, whether you're a huge gas company like uh, Mer- like the one that was in the Merrimack Valley, have a plan. Have a plan ready. You should have a plan now for something going wrong. I can't tell you how many prep schools, hospitals, colleges, nonprofits didn't expect anything to go wrong. When it does, a bunch of people gather in a room and say, what are we supposed to do? Um, Firms like ours put together plans. It needs to be a usable plan. It can't be a doorstop. Earlier, I talked a little bit about the variety of our interview guests. Uh, Up next, Ken Casey of the Dropkick Murphys uh, was a guest on our podcast, which, I mean, how cool is that? He was talking about uh, Murphys Boxing and uh, an event he was promoting here in the city, uh, which we worked to help promote. One of the things that is not in this clip but I thought was really interesting is that he said when he first started promoting boxing, he was doing it for a friend, and he thought it would just be him doing it on social media to his followers. And, like, look at him now. It was a huge event. We had so many people from the office kind of involved Mm -hmm. and uh, very exciting to partner with him on that. Yeah, so Ken Casey. It's a great storyline. You mentioned that your fighter Danny O'Connor was in your last match in Boston. I, I, I feel like I want to say this is easily the biggest championship boxing show in Boston in X number of years. And that X might be, you know, eight or ten, right? It's it's a long time. Oh, no, no. It's I'll go way farther than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last, the last big, big, big fight was probably... 15, 18 years ago when Ricky Hatton fought here on HBO. And that was not even, you know, he's a guy from England and he was fighting a guy from New York. I mean, this is, yeah. you know, Demetrius being from Providence. Um, I, I, I could go say that the, we could be going back to the 80s since it was a fight of this, you know, caliber. And I mean, you've had, you know, you've had the, whether it's, um, you know, uh, a John Ruiz or, you know, you've had big names come up, come out of here. Um, you know, there's other people that have done some, some great stuff. Um, but to have, like I said, a top to bottom card like this with multiple world titles and, you know, it's, um, it's definitely something that I've never seen before. Up next, uh, Cosmo interviewed Dan Kennedy, who is a man who wears many hats. Uh, he's a local media reporter for WGBH. He's also a media critic. He's a professor at Northeastern. And he came on our podcast to talk mainly about his book, Return of the Moguls, the, uh, how Jeff Bezos and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century. The conversation is great, though. And and uh, if anyone watches Greater Boston every week and, and beat the press, mm-hmm. uh you know, you, know love, you love Dan. Yeah. So uh, up next, he's talking a little bit about changes at the Globe. Um, it's particularly its status is no longer being paper of record here in Boston and what that meant. I, I found it interesting. I, I think it was a little risky for the Globe editor, Brian Regori, to, to, to make that shift public that 
We're no longer a paper of record, but a organization of interest and a curated reader experience. Mm. I, I really think the New York Times still believes that it is the paper of record for, for the nation for, and maybe for the world. And if you're the Boston Globe and you're a reader who, who counts on, on them, it's kind of dangerous to say, you know what, we're not going to comprehensively cover this, this very large metropolitan community anymore. That, that, is, a, that is a tough sell. Uh, I think that what McGrory was trying to say, and I hope I captured this in the book, is that we have to figure out a way not to bore you to tears with minor incremental stories and yet be there when there's something big going on. So if there's a big story out of City Hall, a big story out of the State House, we're going to be there. But the problem is, and I asked McGrory this, I said, isn't the problem that you kind of have to be there every day in order to uh, understand and be able to put in context the really big stories when they happen? And I will say he agreed with that proposition, and uh, we both agreed that that's really the challenge. How you meet that challenge, I, I think, is um, it, it remains to be seen. Because I think we both know that so much of journalism is just showing up day after day after day. Up next, you interviewed Amanda Hunter of the Barbara Lee Foundation, uh, looking at the particularly around the structural barriers facing women. It was a great conversation. It's the it Barbara was. Lee Family Foundation, and uh, they uh, support um, uh, women in politics and women in leadership. And um, so we, we talked to Amanda, and uh, yeah, here you go. Thanks. Um, I mean, the reality is we need more women as CEOs. We need more women on boards. And um, I think, I mean, they're probably connected, right, that if you have more women office holders, there's going to be uh, more opportunities across the board. And I think that works both ways because we often talk about how there are structural barriers for women running for office because they don't have access to as many high dollar donor networks as men because there aren't as many women on corporate boards and in C-suites and women don't have access still to all of the same private clubs and they're not on the golf course in the same way that men are. And so it's kind of a two-way street. But we also know that we love the Marion Edel Wright Edelman quote, you can't be what you can't see. Because once you have a woman succeeding in a role, it breaks down the barriers with voters or with others in the business world and opens the door for more women. And that's why in states where there's a woman governor, there often can be another woman governor or more because voters see a woman succeeding in that role and then it's not a big deal to elect a woman. It's having the first to kind of break down those stereotypes. Last but certainly not least, uh, we could not have a highlight reel without including our own Senator Ed Markey, who broke news on OA On Air, just for us. Yeah, it was right after this interview, uh, shortly after, we, we got a call from the media saying yeah. we listened to this and he made news. Yeah, so he announced uh, here on OA On Air that he was going to be running for re-election, which he had not publicly stated before, which was really exciting. Um, and he also, I love his comments that he was still waking up every day and he was like ready to fight. 
and you could you could feel sort of the enthusiasm when he talked about that. So yeah. uh, last but not least, Senator Ed Markey making news here on OA On Air. And, uh, uh, and I enjoy the battle, Tommy, to be honest with you. Uh, I have never been this animated in my whole life. I get up every morning with every one of his tweets, and I'm ready to fight <laughs> because these are important laws. That's good to hear. So you're up, <clears throat> you're up yourself in 2020. You're running for re-election? Yes, I am running for re-election, absolutely. Yeah, I, this, this, is, this is an important time uh, for uh, our... Uh, our country, and we need to ensure that uh, people who know what they're doing and are passionate uh, are there on the front lines every single day to shut down Donald Trump and his agenda. My friend, Senator Ed Maki, it's great to have you here. Thank and, you, Tom. And oh, by the way, we need you. Thank you, my friend. That's it for our look back at 50 episodes of OA On Air. Thanks, Hugh, for uh, joining me. And uh, great to be here. Yeah. Talking about some of our highlights from the past year. Great to be here. We look forward to doing a lot more. And, I, you know, the listeners should stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of creative things going on. Yeah. Thanks to all of our guests who have been a part of OA On Air. And thanks to all of you for listening each week and subscribing. And we look forward to bringing you more great interviews and discussions. That's it for this week's episode. Talk to you next week. We'll